And as you are coming in, you need to get session three paperwork. So on the front cover at the bottom, it should say session three on it. All right. We are going to try to do what's probably the impossible. And it's all my fault because last week I didn't get through session two, which means we need to finish session two and complete session three all in our about 40 minutes. Now, last week I asked you to bring, if you were here last week, bring back with you your session two paperwork. And if you have that, turn to page 14. So you need to have in front of you today two sets. You need to have session two and session three. All right. Page 14 of session two is where we left off. Page 14 of session two. And I'm going to tell you what's coming up quickly. Ladies, this or Wednesday is our midweek program. That's uh, classes for everybody, 7 o'clock every Wednesday. Friday, ladies, 6 to 10, is the ladies' night at the range. If you haven't registered for that, you need to do that today before you leave. You can do that in the resource center right out this back door and across the hallway. Uh, a week from Saturday, one week from Saturday, March the 4th, is the newcomer's brunch at our house. And we would love to have uh, you come. We've already got 20-some people registered for that, which we're thrilled about. Uh, but we would love to add you to that number. But if you haven't registered, do that now. If you've never been to our house for one of the brunches, then consider yourself a newcomer. And today, before you leave, you can stop at the information desk that's out in the lobby and let them know that you're planning to attend. They'll put your name on the list. They'll give you an invitation with our uh, phone number and our address and a reminder of the date on it. On the 11th, that's uh, uh, two weeks, excuse me, three weeks from Saturday, March the 11th is our next family event. That's bowling on that Saturday afternoon from 1 to 3 at the Woodhaven Lanes. But you need to uh, pay for that. If you can pay for that ahead of time, that actually helps us. It's $7 per person for the two games and your shoes, $28 max for a family. So if you have more than four in your family, you won't pay more than the, uh, the $28. No, you cannot combine families to act like you're in the same family <laughs> to get the uh, $28. But uh, to register, you can do that at the Resource Center as well. We've got the Living Last Supper coming up. On uh, Saturday and Sunday, April 1 and 2, if you're bringing someone to that, then those evening sessions are for you. They're at uh, 7 o'clock on Saturday the 1st, 6 o'clock on Sunday the 2nd. If you're not bringing a guest, if you don't have a guest, we have an afternoon session, 3 o'clock on the uh, 1st, Saturday the 1st. So think about somebody to bring so that we can take advantage of that as an outreach event to folks who may not know the gospel. Uh, and it's a great opportunity for that. But if you're not bringing anybody, we want to save the seats for those evening sessions for those who are. And that's why we have the uh, 3 o'clock. But you need to register for that. It's free, but you need tickets. You get the tickets by registering at our website online. And then in April, we're going to start Upward Sports for elementary age kids. We'll be telling you more about that in the weeks ahead. All right, in our first two weeks of this eight-week series, How to Be Good and Angry, we've seen that we all do anger, though we express that anger at different things and in, in different ways. Those different ways that we express anger may include something that I called two weeks ago, transfer anger. If you were here then, you may remember that. 
But I was saying by that term transfer anger that sometimes we are not angry at the immediate object or person in front of us, but we're actually taking out on them something that we're carrying with us that we're upset about, that may be uh, below the surface, but life is not going the way we want. We're aggravated at that, and therefore it doesn't take much to set that off, and an innocent person or thing may be the recipient of that anger. So we all do anger, but we express an anger in different ways and uh, at different uh, people and, and objects. And then last week in session two, we gave a definition of what anger is. And I remind you of that definition from uh, page 10, that anger is active displeasure towards something that is important enough to care about. So on page 10, I have that in bold for you. But anger is active displeasure towards something that is important enough, at least to you, to to care about. In the title of that session, the the title of last week's lesson was, I'm against that. So in anger, what we're doing is we're pronouncing a judgment on someone or something, I'm against it. It's not right. Now, at this point, I'm not talking about whether that judgment is accurate or not. My judgment and your judgment about whether something is good or bad may be skewed. It may be wrong. But always in anger, that's what we're doing, though. We're saying, I'm against that. There's something wrong with it. And thus, the page 10, uh, the page 10 definition that anger is active displeasure towards something that is important enough to me, to you at least, to care about. So we make these judgments. And the question then for us is, is our anger expressed at the right things? Did I make an accurate assessment? about this being right or wrong when I said I'm against that? Should I be against that? Is my anger expressed at the right things and in the right way? Sometimes we can get one of them right and miss the other. Often we get them both wrong. But that's what we've looked at thus far with regard to to anger. We left off on page 14. And about a third of the way down, you see there, we say, all of you does anger. And just to catch us up, I'm going to go through that portion, even though we went through some of that last week. All of you does anger. When something crosses the line and you get angry, how much of you is involved? All of you. Anger is something you do. Now, that seems obvious. Why is this important? It's important because it's true and hardly ever gets said. Usually angry people and those who give them advice focus on only one part of what is going on in anger. And curiously, they focus, what they focus on is not you. Anger becomes something that's happening to you and in you. You deal with it and you harness it or liberate it or manage it or get rid of it. But you're not intrinsically responsible for it, say they. It is going on inside of you. You aren't doing it. Now, just stop for a moment. This, what we just read there, is the problem with many behavioral diagnoses that take place in the helping professions, especially those of the secular variety. Now, I say especially those of the secular variety because even Christian helping professions, counseling, imbibes very often from secular psychology and psychiatry. Uh (coughs) Uh-oh. Okay, we'll see. 
Where's that Flint water you had uh, last week? <laughs> Actually, the problem is I probably had some of that Flint water. <clears throat> so, dude, is this mine or yours? <laughs> Yikes. I dropped the cap and I'm mad at the cap. I kicked it, okay? <laughs> so in the helping professions, whether secular or Christian, that one of the mistakes that's often made in the diagnoses that are given is they diagnose you with something you have, like you have a disease, like you have a virus, like you caught something. And I'm, and I'm telling you to be careful about the medical model of behavioral issues. Now, there may be medical things going on. There may be chemical secretions going on in the brain. There can be a physical component. And a physical component then that medication can, can be helpful for. So as I say this, I'm not dismissing that. But I am saying that there is always a spiritual component as well. And that needs to be dealt with. And further, even the, even the uh, physical things that go on in our bodies ca- can often come as a result of how we've trained ourselves to deal with situations. Not dealing with them in ways that the Bible prescribes. So that is why this paragraph is true. That angry people are left out of their anger. They're told that it's something that happens to them, that something that's going on inside of them, as if it's something that they just caught. And the truth is, with anger, you are doing anger. I am doing anger. That next paragraph, one key to getting anger straight is to understand that when you are angry, you are doing something. Anger is not an it. It's not just a part of you. It does not just happen to you. You do anger. It's a single complex system. It's something you do with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. You size something up very quickly. I don't like that. Your adrenaline surges. Your body wakes up. It heats up. It tightens up. You feel intense emotions. You emote into your tone of voice, decibel level, body language, and facial expression. You think quickly, rehearsing what what uh, happened, imagining scenarios, evaluating, planning, and choosing. You go into action, choosing what to do and say and not do and not say. Your desires and expectations are angry and you want fairness or to be proved right or to be treated lovingly or to get to your appointment on time or to protect someone or to get your way. Is one part of your anger reaction primary, everything else a byproduct? No, your anger operates as a whole system of interlocking components. That unified complexity doesn't reduce to either adrenaline or emotion or thoughts or actions or motives. In anger, everything works together. And if you don't understand that it's something you do, every part of you working in concert, you'll go in the wrong direction. So we're going to illustrate this with snapshots and examples. When you get angry, all of you is involved. Your body, your emotions, your thoughts, your actions, and your motivation. So first of all, bottom of page 14, your body operates in agitated mode. Anger involves physiology and anatomy. It has a marked bodily component, especially obvious obvious in the more dramatic forms. A general nervous tension pervades your body. Your adrenaline surges. The muscles in your face and chest, maybe your fists too, clench. Your stomach churns. 
The sympathetic nervous system fires up. You actually feel hot as blood rushes to your muscles preparing you for action. Your face gets red, eyes glitter. You've heard of somebody having their fire in their eyes, your brow, mouth tighten into a disapproving scowl and frown. You're in a state of high alert with alarm bells clinging. The limbic system of your brain lights up the MRI scan with anger's distinctive neuroelectrical pattern. And then we go on to say that modern neuroscience has revealed the details, but this physical agitation is just common sense observation. That even some of the words we say in that next paragraph that we use, like rage and and rabid, uh, these are all uh, related to something being twisted and distorted, being bent out of being bent out of shape. And so we see that the words that we use for anger are words that come from seeing something contorted. When you see somebody get angry, it has this physical effect. The next paragraph, a little lower on the Richter scale of emotion, the face of an angry person looks as if something left a bad taste in his mouth, like the sour taste of stomach acid. The French word is from which we get someone being a choleric, uh, like the bitter taste of bile or gall, and then we even use words like that galled me, um, and that comes from comes from that very thing. So if you go down to the very last paragraph where it says the whole person then does anger, the body no more explains the core reality of anger than the physics of a flat screen TV explains the movie that's being televised. Electrons underlie everything on TV, but who would dare blame or credit the electrons for bringing us reality TV, infomercials, and C-SPAN? By the way, only one of those three is good, and it's C-SPAN, okay? That was for free. Your body operates in the agitated mode, but what else kicks in? So there's your body. But then there's your emotions. And they operate in hot displeasure mode. Anger's a feeling of distress, trouble, and hatred. When someone says, I'm angry, we usually think first of an emotion of intense displeasure. Your emotional equilibrium is upset, not calm or happy. When you don't like what's going on, anger adds the emotional charge that says, I really don't like that. So that next example is about a guy who may not like lima beans for dinner. And you can read that on your own, but he'll tolerate it if he has to have it. He doesn't make a big deal about it. He doesn't like it. But when we talk about the emotions getting kicked in, bottom of page 15, that same man really doesn't like it if someone lies to him or manipulates him or cheats him. And that's the really part. Really sets mere dislike on fire with emotion. Nobody likes betrayal, whether you're stranded on a desert island or comfortably settled at home. It's not merely a matter of taste and preference. It's a matter of active evil. Evil hurts and anger kicks into gear. Anger is passion. As we just saw, you feel angry and your body gets fired up. But you're not only sensing what your body is doing as if emotions reduce to physiology. No actual human being would say, when you mocked me, my body started to react with those physiological processes that people term the emotion of anger. But we both know that it's just my body reacting. No, you wouldn't say that. You're reacting with feeling. When you mock me, I get disturbed. Anger is a high energy, energy state for both body and soul. So there is your body, there is your emotions, but then there is your mind. Your mind operates in the judicial mode when you're angry. Anger actively involves your thought life. Any dullness of mind instantly departs. You think vividly and quickly. 
When you're mad, an intense mental conversation takes place inside. You watch the video replay in the inner theater of your graphic imagination. Anger involves pointed, articulate attitudes and judgments that express the criteria by which you evaluate something as either acceptable or unacceptable. You run what happened through the analytic grid of those criteria. All your reasoning powers come to bear, however unreasonable they are at the moment. You remember, you imagine, you weigh, you run scenarios of what you should do, you form words, you weigh your possible reactions, you plan. Whether or not you are doing anything outwardly, when angry, you furiously think, and what you think makes a judgment. You idiot. Or that's not fair. I can't believe she did that to me. And then your internal video camera not only replays clips from what happened, but also script and rehearse imaginary scenarios, violent retribution. Or a conversation when you give that perfect unanswerable comeback that leaves the other one speechless and groveling in guilt. Words and actions get thought, planned, and practiced, whether or not you ever say or do what you're thinking inside your head. Now, everybody, if we're honest, we relate to that. In the, in the recesses of our minds, this is the way we play out life. And the game is won or lost in our minds. Now, if you've never listened to our series from a couple of summers ago called Mind, Mind Games, then I encourage you to go on our website and listen to that. Because that's what that was all about. How we play things through in our minds and how we convince ourselves of particular things and how our thoughts then uh, result in our words and our actions eventually. So in that third paragraph, a microcosm of the criminal justice system plays out in the courtroom of your mind. You play all the prosecuting roles at the same time. You're the innocent victim and the offended plaintiff. You're the zealous investigator, the sheriff serving summons to the offender, the DA pressing home irrefutable charges. You provide eyewitness testimony to the crimes, and you're the stern judge ready to mete out just punishment. You are the unanimous jury disposing of every thin alibi in extenuating circumstance, finding the accused guilty as charged. You're the jailer of convicted felons and the hangman ready to administer capital punishment to evildoers. But there's usually something else about this courtroom. The trial is rigged. It's a kangaroo court, and the verdict is predetermined. The punishment is vigilante justice. With rare exceptions, in this private courtroom of the mind, the accused is allowed no defense attorney, no character witnesses, no due process, no extenuating circumstances, no evidence to the contrary, second chances, pleas of innocence, no possibility that the accuser got it wrong, no possibility of mercy for the guilty. Why? Partly because it feels so good to be in that position of superiority in my mind over someone else. Top of page 17, the judicial mental attitude is written deeply into the nature of anger. One goal of our course is that we think more carefully about how we think when angry so that our inner courtrooms grow to be more just. Anger is the attitude of judgment, of legal condemnation and moral displeasure, but judgment can show good judgment. And this begins for us to see how I can be good and angry. I can evaluate the right way. I can evaluate in a more calm way. So your thoughts, our thoughts, operate in judicial mode. But that's not a detached courtroom simply rendering pronouncements. It's also a battlefield where enemies are taken on. And so now your actions. So we've got, we've got, our, uh, we've got our, our bodies and we've got our emotions and we've got our thoughts. And now we've got our strategy. Your actions operate in 
military mode. Anger doesn't only operate in your body, feelings, and mind. It breaks out into behavior. And that behavior, words and deeds, is about conflict and combat. Anger goes into action as a military operation. It's about winning and losing, identifying enemies and allies, attacking and defending. Anger is a fight or flight arousal in the body, the attack and defend emotion, the administration of battlefield justice. We don't ever say of someone he got fighting sad (laughs) or fighting glad. No, they get they get fighting. They get fighting mad. Now, I just have you jot down there for that. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And there James asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And it's a rhetorical question. It's a question that he then proceeds to answer for us. When he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So what's going on is you get the outward skirmish that occurs in the words and actions that take place. The military conflict that that page, page 17, talks about. But that outward skirmish is all as a result of an inward battle that's going on. And the inward battle is the desires that are happening inside of you. And that's what then verse 18 is about, or excuse me, uh, page 18 is about. Your motives operate in godlike mode. So at bottom of all of this are the desires, the motivations. The thoughts then channel those desires and motivations. And because of the desires and motivations, I think the way I think, I talk the way I talk, I do what I do. So even though this is last, it's last because it's it's foundational. And it gives rise to all of the other components that we've looked at. And James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 teaches that very thing. So anger, top of page 18, is not only in your body, emotions, thoughts, and actions. It comes from your deepest motives. Underlying desires and beliefs are at work always. Motives run far deeper than our conscious thoughts. We often feel, think, act, and react without being aware of our motives. But they are the organizing center of who you are and what you live for. The smallest incident of irritation or the merest lingering bitterness reveals vast truths about you if you're willing to look. To tease out the motives underlying anger, ask this, what are my expectations? That simple question helps you stop and think. And the answer often comes in layers, not all at once. Self-knowledge is both a simple gift but a hard-won achievement. You might be aware of your expectations at one level, but gradually come to understand more profound levels. It's hard to see our motives. It's even harder to see them for what they are. Part of the problem comes because anger feels so righteous and bad anger is so self-righteous. I'm so right because you're so wrong. That same passionate desire to think well of ourselves, to assert and defend ourselves continually gets in the way of seeing and facing our motives. But taking an honest look will bring light to the reasons for your anger. So here are some questions that help uncover expectations and motives. When you're upset, what do you want? What does that desire mean to you? Why does that thing matter so much to you? When you fire into anger, why do you be- what do you believe about the significance of what just happened to you? 
What are you afraid of? That might not be one you would think of. But what are you afraid of? Notice, fear is desire turned backwards. Desire is what I want to happen. Fear is what I don't want to happen. So part of the motivation may be what it is I'm afraid of. What dire thing do you believe might happen? What intentions guided you during that interaction? What are you after? When you become bitter and you can't shake it, what do you hope for and wish? What are you living for right now? Not in, not in theory. Those kinds of questions dig deeply into the springs of our anger. They reveal our hearts, what we crave, trust, hate, and love. When anger goes astray, it says something about how you're going to, how you're going astray inside about who is at the center of the universe. When anger runs amok into temper, grousing, or bitterness, you don't just need a technique to calm you down. You don't just need your circumstances to change. You don't just need other people to change. Your core motives must change. The God you worship, my will be done, my kingdom come, or else must be overthrown. And overthrowing a false God takes something deeper than simply learning conflict resolution skills, valuable as those are. It calls for more than altering how you talk to yourself, though that also will change. It also takes more than finding some technique, recreation, or medication that works to calm you down. Sure, take a deep breath or count to ten, but motives are the goals around which you organize your lives. They're the core values and commitments, what you base your identity on. They shape and energize your emotions, your thoughts, and your actions. They determine how you react to everything, pain, loss, or threat. These are the things that provoke anger. They determine how and why you're angry and whether you're angry is radiantly healthy or somehow diseased. So, your motivations. Let me just say this. The middle of that page gives you those diagnostic questions. But it is hard because we make it hard because we're not honest with ourselves to look transparently at what our motivations are. But at least you can do this. You can, everybody here can at least do this. Start with this. If you're getting angry regularly and you're getting angry at stuff you shouldn't get angry at, then you can at least admit this. There are desires going on in your heart that need to be overthrown. You can at least admit that. Now, identifying what those desires are, as we say on that page with those diagnostic questions, that's hard to do because we make it hard to do. Because we like to defend ourselves, because we're not transparent about ourselves. But every person here can start with that. You can start with, if I am regularly getting upset and angry at things and in ways that I should not, then you can know with a certainty, James chapter 4, that what's going on is the battle within in your heart. It's your desires that are warring within you. And as we go, as you ask those questions honestly that were on that page, and as we go forward in the weeks ahead, hopefully you'll make headway on identifying what those are, but start with simply admitting that they are. All right, now page 19. Session 3, we're still in section 2, what is anger? That last lesson gave our definition of anger. I'm against that. You're making negative evaluations that cause you, spring you into action because something you care about has 
motivated you to do so. So we're still looking, though, at what anger is and how it arises. And here we're going to see in the title of session three that nature and nurture and human nature play together in order to make our anger what it is. So top of page 19, we've seen that anger is a moral response saying that's wrong and it matters. We've seen you do anger, all of you, body and soul, and you do it for personal reasons. But how does it arise and what factors shape the particular form it takes? Why do some of us in this room display anger in particular ways and others in different ways? Why do we, why do we do that? In this session, we're going to stand back and we're going to admire a feisty little girl. Witness God's common grace in action in this little girl's life. We're going to think about the original equipment with which human nature comes wired and then look at the way we each pick up patterns and develop habits. So look at that first subtitle there. Anger is natural. Most of us don't remember much from fourth grade, but one author does remember a girl in his class named Leanne from those many years ago, and he recounts her story. She was a fiery little girl. She could be domineering and opinionated. She gave teachers fits, and she would wear out her best friends. When something or someone crossed her will, you knew about it. The toss of her head, the fire in her eye, the quick comeback, the heels dug in for a fight to the finish with no quarter asked and no quarter given. But Leanne could also be a heroine. One day on the playground, her moral outrage was displayed. Mark was her classmate, a small fourth grader, awkward, shy, often teased. On that particular day, he was being picked on by three big fifth-grade boys. The bullies had trapped him in a ring and were shoving him around. When he started to whimper, they began to mock him and sing song. Marky is a baby, cry little baby. I've done this before. so I <laughs> Actually, I've had it done to me. I'm, I'm little Marky. There. Suddenly, Leanne ran up to them. She was smaller even than Mark, but she broke right into the ring, stood up to the bullies, and started berating them. You stop that. It's wrong. You're just being mean. You should be ashamed. Look how big you are. Look how little Mark is. Look how many of you there are in one Mark. Go pick on somebody your own size. You should tell him you're sorry for what you did. She made quite a scene. She was mad. And it was a perfect combination of courage, love, and outrage. The rest of the kids started to gather around instead of hanging back in apprehension. The bullies stopped. They glanced sideways at the gathering crowd and looked down at the ground. Then they edged away, scuffing the dirt with their feet and shrugging. Leanne had won the day. Mark had been rescued from their torment. Now, nobody told Leanne to have a keen sense of justice. It's probable that she hardly thought about what she did. She simply saw an unfair, mean thing going on. Her anger carried her then into action. It was an act of temper, spontaneous, loving, and good on behalf of someone who was being harmed. And it came naturally. Now, I'll tell a personal story about that. Uh, I started at the high school from which I graduated in eighth grade. So I had five years with my classmates before we graduated. But it also meant, having started in eighth grade, that I didn't have the previous eight years from kindergarten through seventh with the class. And most of the class at this Christian school, and I just sort of say it slowly like that, because you know at Christian schools not everybody's a Christian, and you know at Christian schools even Christians don't always act like Christians. So here I come in as an eighth grader, and I don't know anybody. And you know what's going to happen with the kids who have been together for eight years. They're all friends, and you have no friends. So um, they had us arranged uh, by locker 
in God's good providence by last name, Brown. And then next to me, right next to me, were the CAs. That would be Carrico. And many of you know Rich Carrico, the uh, leader in our church. We're looking to have him ordained as a pastor this May in our church. We've been together since eighth grade. But it was because his locker is next to mine. <laughs> and I came in wearing a hockey jacket, and he wore a hockey jacket. So we both played hockey. So in God's good providence, that happened. But within that first couple of weeks, a few things happened. you got these other kids, you know, who don't wear hockey jackets, and their last name is not next to mine. And so they're going to give the new guy a hard time. So I'll give you two incidents. One was... Uh, we were in a study hall playing, uh, you know how you played football with the little papers that you would make like a triangle and you're, and you're kicking them and all that. So we're doing that. I say it was during a study hall, I think. <laughs> May have been actually during class for all I know, but. So anyway, this kid gets in my face that I've only known for two weeks. I mean, gets in my face. I mean, he is ticked about something I did, the way I kicked the paper. I don't, I forget what it was, it doesn't matter, but he is in my face. And uh, I did uh, what I'm still trying to evaluate as I go through this anger series as to whether or not this is the right way to handle this. But I shoved him absolutely as hard as I could. And his body flew over a desk. And he went into the wall. And he gets the wind knocked out of him. And when he finally can breathe, he starts crying. And first I thought I'd killed him. But here's the cool thing. He never did it. Yeah. He didn't do that. Now, there was another kid shortly thereafter that who wasn't in there. And he was messing with me in the locker room. And I thought, I'm going to have to push this guy too. But somebody stepped in. And it was Rich. Rich stepped in and basically told that guy, if you mess with him, you'll have to mess with me. What a great thing. That's why we're ordaining him in May. <laughs> because he can say to the deacons, if you mess with him. <laughs> Kidding. But that sense of something's not right here. That sense of unfairness. And then being willing to righteously step into that. Bottom of page 19. Leanne, like you and me, like all humankind, is wired to discriminate between kind and cruel, fair and unfair, right and wrong. Something about cruel, unfair and wrong bothered her. Unless you've numbed yourself to meanness or hardened yourself by becoming mean, and both of these things often happen as life goes on, then you too will get upset at what seems wrong and unfair. It's something in the way human nature comes wired. Leanne instinctively knew... Without lengthy reflection or careful analysis that what these boys were doing was an evil to be opposed. So anger is the fighting emotion. Anger is the justice emotion, the deliver the oppressed from evil emotion. It stems from love for the needy. All of us come wired with a sense of justice. We can override or pervert it. We can direct it for holy selfish purposes. So a bully's sense of justice might only kick in when he's being mistreated. Or when he's being fairly called to account. Have you noticed how huffy and outraged some people get when they're caught doing something wrong? Well, now I'm angry, but I'm angry because it's because justice is being directed at me. 
Your sense of justice can be bent in many directions for good or ill, but you cannot erase it. It's part of human nature. What's the term for this? The image of God is the shorthand way of describing the way we're all meant to be. You identify something wrong and harmful. It matters. You're designed to get upset about it. You speak and act forcefully to address a problem. When human beings work this way, it's a beautiful thing. It's constructive. It's natural. It's a capacity given by creation in the image of the God who is just. Now, notice this next couple of paragraphs, because I had not adequately thought about some of what's here. And perhaps you haven't either. In the Garden of Eden, there was already evil to be angry at. I thought about that part. So you already had Satan having fallen. You already had a serpent who could tempt. So there was already evil to be angry at. As image bearers loyal to God, Adam and Eve should have been angry at the liar and murderer. They should have picked up sticks and stones and killed the serpent who lied by suggesting to them that God was the liar. So the first act of anger would have been in Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 4. Adam and Eve would not have done what they did had they been good and angry at what they saw, should have seen as evil. If only Adam and Eve had been angry at the right time and in the right way. If only you and I got angry at the right time and the right way. But sadly, anger is natural, yes, and it can be used in this good way. But it's... Natural in a second way. Creational good is entangled with and distorted by fallenness and innate evil. That has become second nature. Now, the next several paragraphs talk about observing children. And it asks the question, you know, where did the kid pick this up? Where does a kid pick up whining and manipulating? And kids, what we what in fact, what's said here in the fourth paragraph from the bottom, it says they didn't learn it. Yes, skill in the habits of whining, temper, and manipulation can be learned. More on that in a bit. A newborn is utterly dependent and comes wired to need and trust parents. A parent is God's in loco parentis on God's behalf. A powerful and loving small God in the infant small universe. And then a transition, though, happens as the child's willingness emerges. A new God comes forth. I am God, says that child, not you. And every child does that. Every child comes hardwired to do that. They don't have to learn it. Annie. Poor Annie. I use her as illustration all the time. And I don't know how old she was. Kim will be able to tell you, but not very old. But she learned to talk very early, and she got, but she got angry very early. And as she learned to talk, she learned to express her anger. And Annie had her own swear word. She would say, pump. And we have no, to this day, no earthly idea. Her creativity, her language skills kick in. For her to make up her own little swear word when she gets mad. And she would yell pump. And we look at each other and we go, who says pump? Who says anything like pump? Where did she get pump? And I go, you're the one with her all day. (laughs) So it comes, it comes naturally. It comes naturally. So if you will look then at page 21. 
You've got both of these. You've got Genesis 1 and 2, creation, and the way we're wired. But then you've got Genesis 3 and how we are not angry at what we should be. Genesis 4, how we're angry at the wrong things in the wrong ways. Cain kills Abel then. So you can be optimistic or pessimistic. Top of page 21, optimists, optimists see all the evidence in the, for the image of God and creational good when they talk about anger. Human nature is basically good, say they. Open your eyes. Look at the noble actions, the courage, and self-sacrifice for others. Consider the creativity and the generosity of which people are capable. The causes of bad all lie outside of you. Those forces of nature and nurture that negatively impact upon you. You have every right to your anger because other people do you wrong. The problems in life, the distorted forms of anger, can be fixed through science, medicine, social reform, education, enlightenment, and good intentions. Why? Because we are good. And that's partly right. We're made as these magnificent beings, right? With this capacity to be angry and and righteously angry. But if you're somebody who's an optimist like that about human nature, look, you will be mugged by reality. At some point, you will be mugged by reality. Usually, certainly by, by the time you go to school. And you'll be mugged by then the depravity of your own heart and the depravity of other people's hearts. The great Christian philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer said this. I had to think about this for a long time. But he said that totalitarian governments are what they are because they are utopian. What does that have to do with anything? What he's saying is this. They're utopian. They believe that human nature is good. But then, as that government, based on that idea... By the way, communism is based on that idea. People are basically good. I wrote a paper when I was in college on that very thing. But then what happens is they get mugged by reality. People are not basically good. So now, not having created checks and balances that are based on the idea that people are not good, that's why we have them, not having that, we have to restrain people in an authoritarian and totalitarian way. So he was absolutely right. An optimist will be mugged by reality, whether that be governments, whether that's political theory, or in your own life. But then pessimists are more cynical and see all the evidence of the fall when they talk about anger. Human nature is basically self-serving, destructive, and duplicitous. So what else can you expect? Open your eyes. Look at all the bullies, liars, and manipulators. People are selfish and think they're better than they are. Real life is a jungle of competing self-interest and spin-doctoring. Since you're part of people, don't kid yourself. You do whatever is required to get by in personal relations, the workplace, or politics. Cynics think they see clearly, but they too only half see. They're both half right and all wrong. When you wake up and look reality in the eye, you can't remain either a tender-hearted optimist or a tough-minded pessimist. I will just throw this disclaimer in. They are both wrong if you see it just totally that way, if you don't see any image of God in people, then you're not seeing them clearly. That's all true. But if you're going to err, err on the side of depravity. Because that's where the Bible that's where the Bible goes. Right? Because that's why we need a Bible to tell us the way things are supposed to be. That's why we need a cross. That's why we need a Savior because of depravity. So anger is natural, but if you go down page 21, it's also learned. Our capacity for anger is a given of human nature, but at the same time, our patterns of anger are learned through human nature. You learn exactly how to be angry in two different ways. You pick it up from others, and you develop your own style through long practice. 
So I'm just going to read one more story here. The good news is the rest of this is self-explanatory. I just encourage you to read it. But look at the bottom of page 21. Here's a simple example. In Detroit, on occasion, we get heavy snowfall. Is a snowstorm something to enjoy or something to be angry about? Is a snowstorm a beautiful sight with a built-in opportunity to meet neighbors, exercise by clearing the walkway, and have fun sledding and cross-country skiing? Or is it a frustration with the inconvenience of shoveling and the financial hit of customers staying home? Or otherwise. Either attitude rubs off on the people around. Unlike experiencing betrayal or being given a surprise gift, a snowstorm doesn't come with a cue card telling you whether I should be mad or glad. Your response is often shaped by how the people around you react. But then if you look at the middle of page 22... There's constructive anger is also learned from role models. It would be an exaggeration to say that the habits of patience and constructive anger are easily acquired from others. They're not. And they're certainly not as easily acquired as the bad habits of anger. Somehow germs seem to be more catching than good health. And a bad attitude travels faster than a good one. But it can happen. Did you ever know a parent or close friend, a teacher or coach who was patient and generous with others, not easily set off? Did he or she save their anger for when there was a wrong that really mattered? Was anger expressed cleanly and constructively as part of love for others that tackled wrongs? You may well have picked up a good thing or two. Another wise proverb says this, walk with the wise and become wise. There's nothing like a good role model to give you a vision for how it's possible to do life, to do life well. Now, here's what I want to tell you. If you guys will give me three more minutes. Um, Think about your anger. Think about how you express it. And then think about the people you grew up with, your parents, your siblings. If you were around extended family a lot, think about them. And think about how you didn't like what they did. And then go, oh no, I've become like them. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, I swore I would not be like my mother. And I become like her. So it does rub off and it is rubbed off on us. Think about the ways that's happened. Honestly, the last thing, bottom of page 22. David Pollison tells the story of driving with his wife on an unfamiliar road, trying to find an unfamiliar destination. He slowed down, was a little tentative about which driveway to turn into. He swears that he had not been indulging in his love of slow driving before that. He'd been moving along at normal speed and had given the truck driver behind him no previous reason to be irritated. But as he slowed and he wavered, that driver leaned hard on his horn. Then as Pollison started to turn left, the truck driver accelerated up next to them on the shoulder, leaned out of his window, face contorted with rage. He let fly a blast of obscenities, employing a vivid mix of anatomical, excretory, sexual, and hellfire vocabulary. He concisely summed up my character, intelligence, mother, and the right to be driving on that particular road, making his life miserable. It's a marvel that he could pack so much content in such a brief moment. The verbal tirade was accompanied by creative use of finger gestures. Then he gunned the accelerator and shot off down the road. It's probably fair to assume that this was not the first time a slow driver received the full treatment at his hands. This was clearly a well-practiced habit. And I wanted to read that because we all develop our own signature ways of being angry and expressing that anger. 
They come naturally, but they also come by nurture as well. All right, let's pray. We'll see you next week, Lord willing. Father, thank you again for the blessings of this day. Lord, we came to worship and we came to encourage each other. We thank you for letting us do that. We thank you for aiding us in that. And now we ask you to help us, Lord, as we go. May we not just be hearers, but doers of your word. Help us to put it into practice this afternoon and this week. May we honor you in the way that we behave, in the way we think, in the way we talk. Lord, we ask you to grant us safety and to be back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.